Today, I get to talk with Nathaniel A. Turner. For context, this episode was recorded on September 21st of 2021. So let me tell you a little bit about Nathaniel Turner. He is an entrepreneur, renowned speaker, author, philanthropist, and leading parental empowerment activist. The human propulsion engineer is the author of multiple books, including Journey Forward, How to Use Journaling to Envision and Manifest the Life You Always Wanted, The Amazing World of STEM, Raising Superman, Stop the Bus, Education Reform in 31 Days, and It's a Jungle Out There, Powerful Parenting Lessons Inspired by the Lion King. Turner appears regularly in numerous national media outlets. The TED Talk speaker strives daily to change the world. He wants to make the world a place where race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status no longer dictate the writing of anyone's destiny. Nate happily shares his template for living our best life, including being intellectually ambitious, globally and culturally competent, and humanitarian driven. So let's get right to it. I'm Lindsay Lyons, and I love helping school communities envision bold possibilities, take brave action to make those dreams a reality, and sustain an inclusive, anti-racist culture where all students thrive. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach, educational consultant, and leadership scholar. If you're a leader in the education world, whether you're a principal, superintendent, instructional coach, or a classroom teacher excited about school-wide change like I was, you are a leader. And if you enjoy nerding out about the latest educational books and podcasts, if you're committed to a lifelong journey of learning and growth and being the best version of yourself, you're going to love the Time for Teachership podcast. Let's dive in. Nathaniel Turner, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited that you're here. And I would love to just invite you to share. I know we read your professional bio at the start of the episode. Is there anything else that we should know about you that listeners should um, understand in terms of who you are and the conversation you're bringing today to the Time for Teachership podcast? Cool. So the, the you just used the word who, and I would say that the thing that I like people to know about me, but not so much about me, about themselves, is that I believe that the most important word in all the human language is the word who. And I, and I believe that because who is what will show up on your obituary, who will show up on your eulogy, and who will show up on your tombstone or wherever that does, there's some remembrance of your life. And so I encourage folks, because I'm encouraged to do this every day, to be led by my who. And, and how I do that is I ask myself daily, who did you help? Who did you serve? And who knew their life mattered because of an interaction with you? So that's, that's, that's my one word, uh, who. That is a fantastic way to introduce yourself. Wow. And so, so much wasn't right off the bat. So I thank you for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I, cool. I'm curious to know, uh, I love Dr. Bettina Love's work, and, and she talks about freedom dreaming. And she describes them as dreams grounded in the critique of injustice. And so with that in mind, thinking about freedom dreaming through that lens, thinking about, you know, what education could be, uh, mm -hmm. what is the dream that you hold for education or, or you know, the, the family role in education, however you kind of conceive of that question? Sure. So I, I will see if I can answer each aspect. So what do I expect? What, what would I, my dream for parents is that parents would actually be what educators proclaim parents are, which is that they're their children's first teacher. And, and so I would I dream of a day when parents are actually prepared 
from conception to be their child's teacher from conception through college graduation. That's, that, that is a dream. So what would that look like? It would look a little bit like Lamas. It would look like Lamas for parents, where parents were being trained and coached along the way so that they that every step of a child's life, they were more than adequately prepared. So, hey, I'm getting ready to have a baby. Well, what should I be doing to make sure my child succeeds academically in the future? Oh, oh, I should be reading to the baby in the womb. Oh, I should dance with the baby as soon as the baby's here. Oh, I should play language tapes or in the crib. Like there, what kind of, I should eat a certain, a certain kind of food and I should serve a certain kind of, oh, I should uh, read all the classics with my baby when, when they're small and we should continue to read those classics that will show up on an SAT or ACT test or whatever down the road. So that's, Right, that's one of the things, or that parents understand that there is no work-life balance and that these offsprings that they brought to the planet, they deserve their undivided attention as much as possible and that they have to be focused on that more so than, than their own career. So that's, that's one aspect. What I hope for students, I'd like for students to actually have a process to be successful. Most, most children that I meet, most students don't, know how to succeed at school. I was one of those kids. Um, so an interesting story with, with my son, when he returned from Brazil and decided to apply for, for college, he applied for 31 of America's top engineering schools. He was accepted to 27 of them, had more scholarship money than most school, most graduating classes get on their own. But when he started his freshman semester, freshman quarter, he was like three weeks in and he sent us a Google Hangout message and said, I can't do this. I don't think I can be an engineer. Because what had happened, he lived in Brazil, played soccer, um, been away from being a student for a while and suddenly was getting ready to be an engineer. And the process of being an engineer was so much different than the process of just being in high school. So what we realized that, is that he needed a system so that he could be successful. So I said, hey man, if we can just get through this one this one quarter and hang in there. When you come home, I promise you we'll create a system. And we did. We created a system of 20 things he would do every day, seven things he would do each week, three things, four things he would do each quarter or semester. And he does that stuff even today. The subsequent semesters, I should say quarters, afterwards he never earned less than a three seven. And he worked on three, three degrees and got into seven PhD offers directly from undergrad. But it wasn't because he was bright. It was because you had a system. We call it the academic success system, or we tell people to lead with your ass. So um, that's what I would hope. I would hope we would give students tools, techniques, and strategies so that they could be prepared. And then the last part is I, I would like schools to be places of mastery rather than places of a grade point averages and test scores. I'd like it if a child was at a supposedly eight years old and they were a third grader that like my goddaughter was if she was ready for high school geometry she could just take, take geometry i like it if if a child was 14 and they were ready to go to college that they could go to college because in fact i don't see why kids are still in school or young people are still in school through 18 we don't live in an agrarian society anymore so there's no summer, no reason to take a summer off of learning or to say that it was a learning loss. It seems like there's no learning. The lo learning didn't get lost. It wasn't misplaced. You all just stopped. So I don't know. So I'd like to see, you know, that different. I'd like to see the structure of schools be different. 
Um, I like for us to go to what what are the micro schools or in some ways re revert to the one room classrooms again, where kids just just learn and learn to master material as opposed to learning what supposedly is needed for a particular grade level. I apologize if that was a long answer, but. That was perfect. Oh my gosh, there was so much richness in there and just ideas for action too, like beyond the vision, like you're moving to to like, here's the system and here's what we are doing and here's what we can do. So I just love the detail in that response. Well, thank you. I think one of the things I'm curious about is like that the, I think there's, there's so much work in this that I think is like mindset and like just having a like different priorities. Like you're explaining this idea of the one room schoolhouse and moving to college at 14. And like these things that really break with tradition, but would ultimately be great. And we have to like wrap our heads around, like, how do we shift our minds to envision that and, and prioritize the things that need to be prioritized versus prioritizing, this is the way we've always done things. So this right. is the way it goes. Right. And so I'm curious to know, like, you know, what are those mindset shifts that you think either the educational system or, or families or, you know, whoever it is that, that should have that mindset shift, like, what is it that they should be thinking about or prioritizing in this work? Sure. So I'm going to go back and do it the same way again. So I'll start with the, with the parents. The mind shift for parents is that parents have to stop outsourcing. I mean, that's one big mind shift. There are other mind shifts, certainly. But one big mind shift is that parents have to stop outsourcing. So what do I mean? There was a point in time where I believe people took parenting and thought of parenting in some roles as almost a profession, that there was this realization that, hey, the my legacy is the legacy of having a child do better than me. But somewhere along the way, that is lost. So then the, now the legacy is, well, if I can brag on my child having done something good, I'm cool with that. But the work necessary to, to so that my child can do something and live a life better than me, I'm not so sure I want to do that. So I'm going to outsource everything. The moment my child is born, six weeks after my child is born, I'm going back to work. I'm going to work and I'm going to give my child to a daycare. Now the daycare is going to be that my child gets is going to be predicated on how much money I make because everything in America is predicated in many ways on how much money I make. So some kids are going to go to daycare where they just sit in a room and look at TV. And some kids are going to go to daycare where they're actually learning in a room and they're going to, and that's going to pay off in the end. So one of the things I think parents have to stop outsourcing and realize that whether or not I have wealth or privilege or not, it's still my responsibility to find a way to make sure that my child who I invited to this planet, they did not invite themselves here, right? They didn't show up at the border. I invited them here that they that I should treat them like a, a welcome and an honor guest. So that that is part of shift to just take full ownership for your for your child's future. Um, what do I think children have to do? Well, part of children's issue is what happens at home. So some of you can't ask them because they're trained many times to do nothing because they've been in a household for nothing. So in Indiana, as an example, I don't think you have to go to school to your age seven. So if I've never been asked to learn, if I've never been encouraged to read, if I've never been encouraged to do math, then it's gonna be very difficult, but we have to find a way to help children be able to see what's possible. And I think one way to do that is just ask kids the question, again, as I met, we talked earlier, if the world were perfect, you'd wanna do what? Because I don't think most adults ever ask children what they want to do. They might say, I want to be a basketball player. And then if they say that, I'll say, well, cool, you want to be LeBron James. 
Well, he is six foot eight and 260 pounds and runs a four five forty. So let's look, let's look at your, your genetics. Can you do that? No, Mr. Turner, I probably can't do that. Okay, well, let's pick something else that we can do. There's a lot of other things. And then once you can tell me what it is you want to do, hey, there's this thing called backward design. We can start designing how to get you to where you want to go, and we can give you the tools and techniques. So I think the ideal is to get children to, to dream audaciously, but then find the support systems to help them to do that. What do I want to see? With, what's the mind shift for educators? Um, that that education is, is not a destination. It's a part of a process. And perhaps we should move from calling people educators to maybe enlightenment coaches where, it, because for me, when I think of when people say I'm educated, it's past tense. I attended Butler University. I was educated at Butler University. I, I, I went to law school. I was educated as a lawyer at Valparaiso University. I, I attended, you know, Valpo Graduate School, so I have a master's degree. So those are all past tense. Very few of us are talking about what we're doing today to remain enlightened. And so I think that that's a, an aspect that in education, even the educators have to change their mind about, the, about knowledge content and realize, as Socrates says, I know that I know nothing. That is so powerful, especially because I think about like the various teachers who I've either worked with or had as teachers who have, you know, used the line, well, I have my degree. And it's like, oh, I don't, I don't know. That's the message we want to center there, right? Instead of like the modeling of here's what I learned today and here's how I learned it today. And like, here's what, you know, we're all going to learn today. What do you want to learn today? I think you just, you captured so much in there from asking students what they want to learn to, you know, all the way to, to thinking about like that redefinition of what it is to be a teacher and a lifelong learner and that model. So really great mindset shifts there. I love those. You mentioned a backwards design, which I am a huge fan of. And so I'm thinking now we can move to kind of the actions, you know, like what does this look like? Okay. And I know you have a really powerful process that you alluded to earlier that you have developed for your own child and thinking about backwards design um, could you speak a little bit to backwards design and that, that process you've created? Sure. So I, I know backward design is um, an educational theory, and I believe it was established. At, I can't think of the person's name, but I know it was at Vanderbilt. Um, so in 94, I was a fledgling, well, no, 93, I got married. In 94, in the fall, my wife announced that, that we, she was pregnant because I always tell people in 94, I wasn't pregnant. Today, today men say we're pregnant. No, 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 1994, 1994, she was pregnant. And so in 94, she says, hey, I'm pregnant. She says, no, it's plus, it's plus. And I see this early pregnancy test. And long story short, I'm like, okay, I'm going to, we're going to fail miserably at this. Neither one of us are prepared for this. We both had these tumultuous childhood. And so I thought, here I am, I'm about to graduate. I'm going to graduate in December. I learned that I'm going to be a father in October. And, I, and I'm like, and I don't know where I'm going to work. I don't have a job. I'm, going to have to have, I'm about to have this law degree and these, this joint master's degree, but I don't know what I'm going to do. And I, and I said to myself, man, if you had gone to a better law school, if you had been more prepared, so when you were taking the LSAT, that you, you were applying for law school, the, the elite law schools would have, would have invited you to attend, you would not be sitting here right now trying to figure out what your next step is because you would have all kinds of options thrown your way. 
And I said, okay, well, where, what school would I have gone to? And I'm like, Harvard, of course, I would have gone to Harvard, it's them one ranked school. And so I wrote Harvard for an application. And then my wife and I, when we got the application, we took the application apart and decided that if we could, if the world were perfect, if we could do what we needed to do, could we get a child to meet the academic qualifications of Harvard? So that was that was our site. Harvard was the destination and everything we did, we did backward, right, to, to, to do that. So Harvard's first element on their application said, we want obviously students to do well academically. And we're like, well, we don't even have a baby yet, but what do we, what do, we do while you're pregnant to make steps? So we started doing those kinds of things, reading in the womb, right? And she would increase her vocabulary and make sure she ate properly and make sure she exercised so that her delivery was easy. So we didn't put any additional emotional stress on this unborn baby, right? And I, you know, make sure that I, I didn't cause her stress and I was a loving and kind of a, you know, a happier version of me that I possibly could be. And then when the child was here, like, what would we do for, for, from an educational standpoint? So we want to make sure we can, the child can read early. So what does the science say about having a child read early? Well, bodies big uh, posters and show the, the infant pictures and make the sounds that are on the pictures and spell out the letters and tell the colors and do all that kind of stuff. And you want to introduce new languages, play language tapes in the crib. And so instead of hearing Gaga, Google come out of our mouth. You would hear, hola, come esta, vieni tu, right? Guten Morgen, guten tarde, and the tapes will play. So that was part of the, here, here's what Harvard says we have to do academically. And then the second thing we didn't recognize was that before the application that Harvard also asked for students who were world citizens. Then that was the word they used in 94. And we're like, wow, so that, today that really speaks to cultural and global competency. So like, okay, well, then we got to make sure he can learn, at least speak another language. So that was the language tapes, right? And then at every step we would get, we would want to introduce him to people who spoke another language. So we had, we bought like um, Reader Rabbit and Jumpstart, or today is Duolingo and other things that are available. But in 94, there was CD-ROMs and you put the CD in and, and the child would listen to it and do stuff on the screen. And so it was a little bit interactive. And then the last element on the Harvard application was that you, they were looking for students who care for something greater than themselves. And I'm like, okay, well, then that's what we call today humanitarian driven. I said, well, everything he does in his life has to have a component where he is doing something for something, some cause greater than himself. And so that became the template that we use now, which is intellectual ambition, which we call a little bit more than just grades, but wanted to make sure he could do think critically. Second part is global and cultural competency. Hey, we want you to be able to speak in other people's language, but we also want you to understand other people's culture. You cannot be the person who is always asking people to understand your situation and your history without having a context for other people's history and other people's experiences. Because when you do, it's going to make it easier for everybody to come together. And then the last part was that we wanted him to care for something greater than themselves. And everything that you would do in your life had to be predicated about that. Because as I would, as I mentioned earlier, people are always going to judge you by who you are, by your words and your deeds. Wow, that is so powerful and also just so brilliant to be able to just deconstruct that application and then figure out from the womb, like, what are we doing? So I love that approach. As an educator and a backwards design thinker myself, I love it. And I appreciate all of the really tangible 
things from someone who even are, is just figuring out they're pregnant to be able to listen to this episode and be like, all right, it starts now. Here we go. Exactly. So that is fantastic. Um, I, I, I'm curious to know as, as you kind of got to know your child and, and, and learning kind of what he was interested in, like, what was the path of kind of facilitating that engineering and he's ending up at the engineering school. And so what was that like to kind of facilitate that learning about, you know, being an engineer and, and those kind of skill sets? Sure. So the interesting thing is I had no, um, I had no preconceived notions or any intentions that he would be an engineer. In fact, engineering was the furthest thing that I'd imagine he would ever do. He was so good with with writing and language and so forth. You know, here 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 we are with an African American child who is 16 and is fluent in four languages and conversational in two others. So you're like, okay, he loves to write and he started this little foundation and he's caring for. He's written about uh, written a book. He's writing writing a book about uh, what are, what are we going to do today, which is to encourage other parents to be more involved in their children's lives. And he started this foundation to work with homeless teens. I have no idea he is going to be interested in that. What I would tell you we did, Lindsay, and and again, is it brilliant or is it accidental, <laughs> right? Is it trial and error, <laughs> right? I always tell people he's kind of like the project and, and he's been the test case dummy, right, <laughs> sometimes that that we just wanted to make sure, essentially, I would say it's a little bit like the proverbial buffet, buffet table. We wanted to make sure that he was prepared to eat anything he wanted to have off the buffet table. I grew up in Gary, Indiana. I was not prepared, if you can imagine, life as a buffet table and that the best things in life, the, the filet mignon, the Don Perignon, the uh, caviar that are all at the left end of the table, and I had the stuff at the right end of the table, the hot dogs, the right, the sausage in the can, the crackers, the cheese. Like when 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 I showed up at the buffet table, they would point to me and say, "No, Nate, you stay on this on this side of the table with the with the inexpensive stuff. You're not ready for the other stuff." And what we wanted to do is just make sure that he had the opportunity to choose wherever he wanted to be on life's buffet table. So it wasn't until he went away and spent time playing in, playing soccer in Brazil, that he that he then said, I think I'm gonna be an engineer. And, and Latanya, which is my wife, and I said, what, an engineer? Okay, I, all right. And it, of course, he'd done well enough in math and science um, to, to meet the re academic requirements, but it was never our plan that that's what he would end up doing. I appreciate you saying that too, because I think sometimes we do have, or I've definitely had students come through my classes where, they are like, my parents said I'm doing this. And so that is what I'm doing. And I, you know, in talking to the student, you get to know them and you're like, well, what is it about being a doctor, for example, that you want to do? Oh, I actually hate medicine and I hate science. And I, oh, okay. So you actually don't want to be a doctor. <laughs> Interesting. And so it's, I think so much of what you're talking about is so great because not only are you, do you have this structure, this backwards plan, but it's also fluid and flexible enough to actually follow whatever it is that your kid is passionate about. And I think that's so important, both for, for families and caretakers, as well as for teachers, that we, we just need to be able to follow the passions of our students, because otherwise, you're just going to promote disengagement and be like, oh, I'm just doing this because my teacher told me or my parents told me. And that's not good. 
Yeah, I mean, we we wanted to make sure he had a, like a wide variety of things he was introduced to. And so when you get enough things, you get to introduce it. Because a child can say, well, I don't like that. And I said, well, have you ever done it? Well, no. Well, how do you know you don't like it? So when our son first started playing soccer, he, he hated it. I'm going to be the worst person out here. I said, you are. You, you are the worst. Nobody, you've never played. You're terrible. So you're at the bottom. Let's just start with that. And then he played. And then we start talking about soccer, but soccer is a metaphor for life. I said, well, you're not any good at it because you don't practice. You're not any good at it because you don't do the right things to be good at it. You're not any good at it because your mindset is terrible. So let's talk about how to change your mindset. Let's talk about visualization. So can you imagine you're in a car with a four-year-old and you're talking about visualization? And then one day you're you in the car and you look in the back seat and the four-year-old has their eyes closed. And you say, what are you doing? And he said, I'm envisioning how I'm going to play today. Like, okay, right? And I'm gonna score, I'm gonna steal the ball and I'm gonna go downfield and I'm gonna score a goal. And he goes out and does that. And then you're like, oh well, right? And so now that four-year-old understands something about life that the that some 14-year-olds or 24 years don't oh, hey, I am as I think I am. And so that becomes a you know a part of his routine that he uses for everything. But the, the intention was not that he would play professional soccer. One day, he, he enjoyed it so much, he said, hey, I'm ready to lead a country and see if I can't live out my dream of playing professional soccer. But mom and dad, you prepare me because I speak fluent Portuguese, and I speak fluent Spanish, and I speak Catalan, and I speak English, and I know some German, and I know some French. So I got a few options. I can go some places. And I can try it out. But yeah, the goal was never to make him do anything. It was to just to give him the uh, a breadth of uh, information and opportunities that he could choose what he wanted to do in his life. That's so powerful. And I and I appreciate you've been talking about like, you know, the 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 realities of the structural pieces of our of our society paired with this like within our family, we can, we can have a locus of control of this. We can visualize this. And so I'd love for you, if you're okay with it, to speak to the, the misunderstandings about, um, you know, for parents and for, for teachers, right. Of, of underserved and underrepresented students. And so like what I'm just imagining like that family school dynamic. And I know many teachers have had misunderstandings and misconceptions about families, um, who, who have, uh, marginalized identities and, and are underrepresented in, in systems of power in our school structure. And so I just love to, to hear your thoughts sure. on that. Sure. So one of the things I would say with America is number two in gross national spending or per pupil spending in the world. We're number two. When you look at our math scores, I think we're, we're in the 30s and the science scores, we're in the 30s and the reading, I think we're 17th or something like that. So we're spending a bunch of money and we're not having great outcomes. So what is the point to that? The point to that is that America, if you believe that income is the reason that students succeed, then you need only look at how our outcomes are internationally. And we're spending more money than virtually everybody, but we have results that rival Turkey and Rwanda. So it is not about money, right? It is about the time that we invest. And so if you, if you imagine the rule of, the 10,000 hour rule. And you say, well, what does it take, if that's true, what does it take to become an expert in something? And you say, well, how many hours is in a child's life from zero 
to age six. Is there 10,000 hours or more? And you, how, many, how, how much of a brain is developed from zero to six? More than 90%? So then I'd say, what are you doing in those first six years? Poor parents, wealthy parents, any parent in between, what are we doing from zero to six? I contend if you're doing little to nothing from zero to six, then your outcomes, I don't care how much money you have, are not going to be very good. You know, it may have a slight difference because if you have wealth, you're probably going to have a slightly enhanced vocabulary because mom and dad are going to put you in a position to meet people. But are you going to be a better student? Probably not likely. I believe there's only 35% of even white students that are exceedingly proficient on the last ACT, reading, writing, math, and science, about 6% for African-American students. Um, but there's not 100% of the students, like almost 70% of white students are failing as well. So the, the thing is, we have to get involved and stop outsourcing um, early on. And then parents have to, again, be what schools say we are, which is their children's first teacher. We got to really roll up our sleeves and, and get involved, no matter whatever your income, your, your income, your wealth income status are. Yeah, excellent points. And I, I think from the from a teacher perspective too, to be able to value what parents do bring to the table in those conversations about their child and about really honoring and just uh, kind of almost making the assumption of, yeah, you are your child's first teacher and I'm going to treat you like you are versus I'm just going to tell you when your kid is bad and that's the only communication we're going to have. And it's just, you know, like this broken system of communication. So I think it's totally a partnership there. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if I believe if you, and I don't want to, I don't want to liken children to material, but if we, if we were to liken children to material and I said, Hey, Lizzie, every day you're going to get to work with gold or Lizzie, every day you're going to get to work with, I don't know, cement. You'd say, well, give me gold every day, like right. Or if you're an artist with with the best canvas and all of the best paint, and I say, well, you can have that, or I can give you a bunch of broken crayon. You would say, well, of course, Nate, give me. And so I'm I, like, what happens if we finally start delivering children to school who are not needing to learn to read, who are not needing to learn to write, who are not needing to learn to do math? But if we deliver to school students who are her reading, who are now ready to read, to, to learn, who are now already doing math at its most basic level or better. When, when my son went to Stanford the very first time for a um, visit, we met families that were from, from Asia and from uh, East Europe, or the Eastern part of Europe, I want to say like Ukraine, Russia, who had taken calculus as third graders. I'm like, they don't have any more money or any more resources. They just have a different uh, culture, a different structure about what they believe children need to do, at least those families. I'm sure not everybody is that way, but those that, that there's a different way to get their children prepared. And I just we maybe should adopt some of that. Yeah, wow. Third grade calculus. I can't even imagine. <laughs> that was hard for me in college. <laughs> there's a, a gentleman by the name of Glenn Doman. You may be familiar with his work. He has an institute that is, his daughter still maintains it. I'm going to get it wrong, but it's like the Institute for Advanced Intelligence or something like that. But he started, I want to say in the 70s, coaching parents to work with children who have brain injuries. And he was teaching children with brain injuries 
how to read by 18 months and do and do complex math problems like 1,267 times 7,892. And those babies with brain injuries could do the math problem. And when I saw that and started and picked up his books, I'm like, whoa, hold on a second. My child don't have a brain injury. His daddy's brain is a little questionable, but my baby's brain is fine. If if he could do that with those children, why are we all doing that with every child? So we picked up the, the dome and it was how to give your baby encyclopedic knowledge, how to teach your baby to read, how to teach your baby to do math, those kind of things, and started trying our best to apply those things as best we could in Naeem's life. Wow, that is really powerful. I, I I think there's there's so much to think about in terms of what you have shared with us today. And so I'm just imagining a listener being like, okay, I'm ready to go do these things and I, I'm ready to get started, but there's just so, so much I could be doing. Where do you recommend that someone starts as like a, maybe a first step or something to get the ball rolling with, with this way of, of, of being and, and parenting and teachers partnering with parents and that kind of thing? So the, for the parents, I think the very first thing to do is to just to simply ask yourself, what are your hopes and your dreams for your children? And that's, that's where I start, where I end. That's, that's what um, informs my conversations with teachers. It's what informs my conversation with university faculty and presidents. Listen, here are the hopes and dreams I have for my child. Can you help us make those things a reality? If you can, good, this is the place for them. If you cannot, that's fine, but just tell me because you're not his parent and I'm not outsourcing my parental rights and responsibilities to you at all, right? At the end of the day, if he's in an orange jumpsuit or he turns his tassel and throws a cap and gown up in the air, <laughs> people are gonna say, whose child is he? So I wanna make sure you can help that you understand what my hopes and dreams. So that's what I would start with families. What are your most audacious, bodacious hopes and dreams are for your children? You have to, you have to dream of you. Without those dreams, then there's, then we're all just, we might as well be, I guess, inanimate objects, right? We should just be a plate or a glass of water or something. If we're not going to dream, then what's the point of being here? Thank you so much for sharing that. I love that as a starting point. I think there's so much potential in, like you said, the backwards design process. If you don't have those hopes and dreams laid out and you're not clear about them, like how are you ever going to backwards design from there? So. Right, it's like taking a trip with, and then you're, you say, I'm going to say, my phone is going to ask, hey, G, hey, S, hey, Siri. And Siri says, yes. And you're like, I want to go somewhere. And, and then they're going to say, where? Like, <laughs> Where? Where do you want to go? I can give you the directions, but I don't know where you want to go till you tell me. So yeah, at some point it starts with what are those hopes and dreams? All right. And then at some point the children will tell you about what their own hopes and dreams are. Naeem told me standing on the top of the Grand Canyon that he was done with high school and I want to go chase my dream. I want to go chase my dream, dad. And I want to play professional soccer and I need to leave the country. Okay. Right. Okay, you got a destination. <laughs> now I gotta help you figure out how to get there. Oh, that's so beautiful. I'm just imagining that scene too. Just like, okay, all right, this is right. this is movie worthy. <laughs> we we had, we had just finished reading The Alchemist, and if and and and, if you, and then I would say, hey, put that in your show notes. And 
I have families definitely should read The Alchemist. And, and he said, okay, I know, where, I know where my pyramid is and I'm, and I'm ready to get there. And you got to be like the shopkeeper and you got to help me figure out how to get there. I said, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. That is got there. He got there. But he had to, he had, I had to know what his hopes and dreams were first. That's awesome. And I will absolutely link the alchemist in the show notes. The great suggestion. I know one of the things you mentioned early on in our conversation is this idea of, you know, teachers and, and parents and caretakers being lifelong learners and, and being committed to that, that growth journey. And so I'm just curious to know, this is kind of a question I asked for fun at the end, like what's something that you have been learning about lately? Okay. Lately, every day I learn about me. I learned something about about myself lately. So, and I would say that this realization that I needed to learn more about me and, and more about me in terms of like pressing the envelope, Nate, how much more can you learn to be able to be a, be a, a, a help or a servant for other people came from a child. So Naim and I having this conversation, he returns, returned from his visit to Brazil. It's in June of... 2012 and and we're in a car and he looks at me he's like what's wrong with you and I have tears in my eyes because I feel like my life is over like the he I've had hopes and dreams for him and he's now articulated his hopes and dreams and now he's about to leave the freaking country and leave me here I'm like what am I supposed to do now this I've been doing this for 16 years what else am I supposed to do and he looks at me and he says you can do more Something like that. It's in the book, and he pointed out to me the other day that the exact quote is on page 61. I'm like, okay, yeah. But it's something like, you can do more. You still have time. And I was like, well, what more can I do? And he said, Dad, do everything you've been doing with me for other families. So what I've been doing since 2014, when we published Raising Superman, was finding a way to be better equipped to share with other families how to give their children their best life. So every day I'm like, okay, well, what are, what can you do different? And lately, one of the things I've been doing is I've been journaling and I've been doing this process called journaling forward. And I've been coaching other, other adults now how to journal forward. And I've been coaching parents how to do this course we designed called uh, Mission 51, uh, 5126, which is this ideal of how do you get to a mission like Harriet Tubman, who had these 30 plus missions of freeing slaves. How do we show people how to liberate themselves to their best life? And then 5126 is out of respect of Sir James Dyson, who had 5,126 failed prototypes before he finally got to the 5127 prototype to get the Dyson vacuum cleaner. And I believe he's worth like $40 billion today. And so I say, hey, you got to be willing to fail 5,126 times, but you also got to be on a mission to do something that's for something greater than yourself. And so that's, I've been working on that, working on sharing with families some tools and strategies, but I have to keep getting better in order to continue sharing tools that don't seem like they're now old or outdated. 
That is awesome. And we can link to, to any of those tools that you'd like to share with folks in the, in the show notes in the blog post as well. Um, finally, where can, where can people learn more about you and the work that you do or connect with you online if they're interested in learning more? Well, you can connect with me, Lindsay. I'm going to give you my phone number. You can just call me anytime. You and I are going to stay in touch. Perfect. Um, but everybody else, I mean, you know, I, have a, I have a website. It's uh, NathanielAturner.com, N-A-T-H-A-N-I-E-L-A-T-U-R-N-E-R.com. That's that's probably the easiest way. I have a, still have a blog. It's called Raising Superman. Um, and I, I write on the blog, but generally, if you if you were on Nathaniel A. Turner, if you went to the site, this mark says blog, it would take you to that blog. We have an online course for parents called the um, Extraordinary College Planning Course. I think that's what it's called. But I'll share with you. It's through Teachable. Um, and we started a, let's just say we, Latanya and Naeem and I started a not-for-profit called the League of Extraordinary Parents, where we could begin to share with parents some of the some of the t- same tools and strategies. So, yeah. That is that's, amazing. That's You've been doing fun. so much. <laughs> because a child demanded it of me, and he still holds me accountable to it. And and so I still believe that I'm responsible for hoping and dreaming and in a very audacious fashion. And I do that because I don't want to let him down. It sounds like you are doing an amazing job. Your, your son sounds incredible. So that is, that is a great work that you're doing. And I appreciate not only all you're doing, but just that you took time out of your day to, to speak with me and, and speak to our listeners. So thank you so much for being on this podcast. Uh, I'm grateful that you, that you invited me. So thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, amazing educators. If you loved this episode, you can share it on social media and tag me at Lindsay Beth Lyons or leave a review of the show so leaders like you will be more likely to find it. To continue the conversation, you can head over to our Time for Teachership Facebook group and join our community of educational visionaries. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. Thank you.